Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me today in the Scanoff studio is Professor Rod Andrew of Clemson University. Rod is a longtime friend. Uh, his specialty is the American South and military history, and he has written a new book, a biography of General Andrew Pickens of the Revolutionary War, and it's called The Life and Times of General Andrew Pickens, Revolutionary War Hero, American Founder. Welcome to the journal. Thank you so much, Walter. Rod, with my work in colonial and revolutionary America, I know that Andrew Pickens didn't leave a whole lot of written material. So how did you go about putting together a biography, and a rather substantial biography, with such a paucity of primary sources? Well, you're right. Um, even Pickens's contemporaries uh, recognized him of, as someone um, whose deeds spoke louder than his words. He, he didn't say much. He didn't make many uh, speeches. Uh, when he did, he wasn't all that articulate. He did. There is correspondence between him and other generals and political leaders of the day and, and uh, Indian leaders of his time, but they don't reveal much about his inner thoughts and motivations. He, certain, he certainly didn't write any sophisticated political or philosophical treatises. And even though he did have a, a political career of sorts, he didn't really have to go on the stump because everybody knew who he was. Everybody knew who Andrew Pickens was, and they sort of trusted him as as uh, someone who was a man of integrity and courage and someone not to be taken lightly. I want to make a comment about the cover, and then we want to get into Andrew Pickens, the man. It is a rather, you could say, forbidding portrait. It is based upon a portrait. And I know you've had people, you've told me that some people said, couldn't you find a smiling portrait of Andrew Pickens. Well, I think the portrait captures the man, but the physical face, you explained it to me in the first two pages of the book. We always think of Andrew Pickens as being Scots-Irish, which he is, but he mentioned that on his father's side there was a Huguenot forebear. His nose looks like that of many Huguenots in South Carolina, and also the slightly dark complexion as well. That his Huguenot forebears came out with the Scots Irish somehow. Right. One of his ancestors, Robert Picken, <laughs> uh, was an official in the French court and married a Huguenot widow, and so that is that's where the uh, Huguenot ancestry comes in. But yes, it's uh, people have said, you know, couldn't you get a picture of him smiling? And I said, well, that's as close as a smile as you're going to get for Andrew Pickens. That's that's Pickens smiling. <laughs> Well, you've got a very nice and, and a long explanation on how you were going to tackle the problem. Before we get into talking about Andrew Pickens and the biography, I really want to ask you a few more things about Rod Andrew. Who are you and who are your folks and where did you go to school? And if you're writing so much about military history, do you have a military background? That's actually four questions. But okay. <laughs> well, I uh, grew up in Wilmington, North Carolina and went to the University of North Carolina as an undergraduate. After college, I went into the Marine Corps, did about three and a half years, uh, served in Desert Storm, and after that, I transferred to the Marine Corps Reserve and got my master's degree in history from Clemson and PhD from Georgia. Stayed in the reserves until just the beginning of this month. So I've got 29 years of total Marine Corps service. And the Marine Corps used your historical experience. Yeah, I was, I was an artillery officer. I was a combat arms officer for the first half of my career, but the, the last five or six years of my career, I was a field historian with Marine Corps History Division and did researching and writing on Marine Corps history. Okay. I find it fascinating that you have produced two wonderful biographies. Your years back, you did the biography of Wade Hampton, which won the Hodges Prize from the Institute of Southern Studies here at USC with a tremendous national prize. And now you've done Andrew Pickens. And you do biography, at least this biography, a little bit differently because you don't have a treasure trove of Andrew Pickens' letters. There's no Andrew Pickens' diary. And in your introduction, your preface, you explain how you handled this problem. So let's talk about how you went about putting together this book. Well, I was bitten by the biography bug after doing the Hampton 
the Hampton work. And when I got interested in Pickens, I guess initially I thought I would be able to do the, sort of the same thing with Pickens that I did with Hampton. And that was that was kind of naive. Pickens, every now and then Hampton would sort of wear his heart on his sleeve. Mm-hmm. And he would really open up about his uh, his pain, his frustrations, his disappointments. Pickens doesn't let you in very much. So they're Although he does write letters, they're very businesslike, they're very to the point. He doesn't write any philosophical or political treatises. He's, he's all business. A lot of what I tried to do was extrapolate just from his times and from his background as uh, a stern, old light Presbyterian from a, from a Calvinist background. All right, let, let's and, explain the old lights for okay. our listeners. Right. There was a split among evangelicals in the Great Awakening, 1730s, 1740s, between old lights and new lights. Often historians of religion treat the new lights as the evangelicals, and old lights as they kind of come across as more stodgy conservatives. You know, if you look at it closely, their doctrinal beliefs are are pretty similar. Uh, Those old Calvinist beliefs about the sovereignty of God, the absolute sovereignty of God, the natural depravity of man, that man is, is naturally, is inherently sinful and corrupt, uh, the need for uh, repentance and salvation through Jesus. They, they believe all the same things. The biggest controversy that I found was the hymn book. <laughs> <laughs> the new lights light this new uh, fangled uh, uh, hymn book by Isaac Watts. The old lights like the old Scotch dozen that came directly from the old uh, Psalter. Singing the Psalms, yes. Right, right. Right, and they consider Watts's hymn book a, a dangerous innovation, and the New Lights were more emotional. They allowed much much more room for uh, emotion in their worship style, and were somewhat more conscious about trying to evangelize um, slaves and Native Americans. All right, so we've got that as as part of his personality, but there's mm-hmm. there's more. Let's take the family back to Northern Ireland. Okay. The Pickenses were part of that tide of Scotch-Irish, what we call in America Scotch-Irish immigration, but people who were originally from Scotland who had been in Ireland for a while and now were fleeing Ireland for the New World. And they came into Pennsylvania um, late 1710s, 1720s. Pickens's parents were actually born in Ireland. So he was the first generation born. Uh, he was actually born in Pennsylvania. When he was a very small child, the family started, they participated in that movement of the Scotch-Irish to the south and southwest. Down the Great Wagon Road. Right, into the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. And then around 1752 or 1753, when Pickens was around 13 or 14, they moved to the Waxhaws Settlement in the Catawba River Valley on the the North Carolina-South Carolina border. Well, they were actually two areas that the Scots-Irish mm-hmm. came to in South Carolina, or the Ulster-Scots, they keep being called different. Right, right. You know. right. But the Waxhaws was one large mm-hmm. settlement, and then on the other side of the state, you've got uh, the Long Canes settlement. Right. Those two areas are abutting Indian territory. Yes. Present-day Greenville, Pickens, and Oconee counties was Cherokee territory till the Revolution. Right, right. And so these were people who... You know, you, you think about the dangers of the frontier. Well, they, that's that's what they lived. Even if there was, at, at the moment, they were at peace with the Indians. They, they For the most part, the Waxhaw settlement got along fairly well with the, you know, with the, with the local Catawba Indians. But the threat of Indian retaliation against, against uh, uh, some white trespass was always over the horizon. And, and, of course, in the 1760s, the Cherokee War. Right which Pickens participated in. And, and this is where Calvinist doctrine and Pickens's real life really come together. The world in the Calvinist worldview is a, is a violent, chaotic place. And Pickens's whole life is defined by conflict with Indians, conflict with Tories, uh, bands of outlaws on the frontier, there are massacres. There are scalpings. Uh, it's a place of greed and violence. With uh, even even his own fellow citizens, white citizens, uh, trespass, you know, violating treaties that have made, been made with the Indians. And so, 
the book sort of tries to follow that trajectory of Pickens trying to navigate his course through a violent and chaotic world. What was his role in the Cherokee War? Um, he was, let's see, he, he would have been 21 years old at that time. He was a lieutenant in a detachment of militia that was raised from uh, from his community in the Waxhaws and and uh, served on the on the frontier. Cherokee War, 1761 to 63, roughly, right. although it some fighting continued after that. Right. And he did see combat. Yes. And is this where, contrary to what people think about frontiersmen, is this where he began to, began to have some kind of empathy with the Cherokee? It's interesting because he does make a comment, and in the, in the closest thing we have to an autobiography of, of Pickens, a, a letter he wrote towards the end of his life, in which he said, this was my first, uh, if, to paraphrase here, my first exposure to British cruelty, which I always abhorred. So there's a hint that he saw something, and you know, the war was was brutal. Um, you know, there there were scalpings and massacres, and and Indian villages destroyed. He saw something that really troubled him, and yet he participated in during the Revolutionary period on many more expeditions against the Cherokees. So. It's, it's interesting to speculate what, what it was that really bothered him and really stood out. That phrase, British cruelty, which he abhorred, of course, that's the Scots-Irish. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's you part know, of their experience, yes. They're particularly those who were settled in the Waxhaws, because some of those Waxhaw folks did not come down the Great Wagon Road. They migrated just before the Revolution straight to the Waxhaws. And they talk about British cruelty and the rapacity of English landlords. Let's English. We're really talking about the English now. Right, right. Okay. Although they use the term British. So this is his background when the American Revolution breaks out. Yes. What does he do? Because initially the backcountry is kind of lukewarm about the revolution. The backcountry as a whole appears lukewarm um, in the Long Canes community, the western part of 96th District, where he was. Whig patriot sentiment seems to be stronger from the beginning. Mm-hmm. The Calhouns with whom he was now, the family he was now married into, they were firmly on the patriot side. The Presbyterian clergy, mm-hmm. um, I think anecdotally, I think we can, we can certainly conclude that for the most part, they were firmly mm-hmm. on the patriot side. And so very early on, we find Pickens forming a militia company among his neighbors in Long Cane and trying to procure ammunition. Did he participate in the Great Snow Campaign? Tracking he participated in the Great Snow Campaign. He participated. Our, to, the Snow Campaign was an army of backcountry patriots mm-hmm. led by Richard Richardson, but they were tracking down Tories. right. The first blood of the American Revolution in South Carolina had been shed in the winter of 1775. Right. And this is 1775. So he was held. The snow campaign, they had a, a heavy snow uh, early December, then freezing temperatures, and the snow literally stayed on the ground. And when they were tracking the Tories, it was not hard. They were tracking the Tories through the snow. And they captured mostly captured. They didn't kill them at that point when they got them, but they captured most of them. And as they said in Charleston, pacified right. that part of the back country. Right. It was miserable, hard service. And it, and it reminds us that Whigs on the frontier saw the Tories as the threat to order and liberty. We, here they, we, we think of them as leading a revolution or a rebellion. They saw themselves as trying to preserve order. And in their minds, the Tories were cooperating with the Indians and uh, and cooperating with the British who who they thought were encouraging Cherokee attacks on white settlements. Well, that actually was the British right, plan. Right, right. The superintendent of Indian Affairs for the Southern District, uh, Mr. Stewart out of Charleston, that was his plan to actually get uh, the Indian allies to who were allied with the English to attack the frontiers. And that's, that is the decisive event, I think, that, that – uh, 
turns much of the backcountry toward the patriot cause. It's not the things that the, the low country elites were had been concerned about, like the Stamp Act and the T Act, that that had an indirect impact on them, if any. It was security and order uh, on their in their own frontier communities. Before the revolution, that had to deal with the aftermath of the Cherokee War, and again, the lawlessness in the backcountry. In this case, fellow citizens, the armed outlaw gangs. Uh, had to be put down by a vigilante movement. Right. And at that point, Pickens is a young man in his late 20s, early 30s. He is a church elder. He has he is about to do a, a stint as a justice of the peace. He's trying to establish himself as a small-time planter and merchant. He's got a young family. He is very interested in trying to establish law and order and, uh, and moral order because, you know, there's... There's outlawry, there's there's prostitution, there's uh, uh, young women and girls are being abducted and carried off by outlaws. So The regulators, of course, eventually overdid them. I mean, right. overdid it with the morality issue, uh, right. and things got personal, and then you get into the, the conflicts between the regulators and those in the backcountry who oppose them, and you say that Pickens was a regulator. Well... No, there's no direct evidence that he rode with the regulators. Okay. But he would have sympathized he, with their okay, goals. He would have, okay. Yeah. The regulators, eventually, some of them, two companies of them were recognized by the Commons House of Assembly to put down the outlaw bands, which right. they did. But then they decided to take one step further, not just the, the organized companies, but the regulators in general, to discipline what they termed the lower sort of folks did. Mr. Andrew beat his wife. If they thought so, they would whip him. Right. Did so-and-so not pay his debts? If a woman was considered a common scold and gossip, well, she got roughed up. If she was thought of that she might have been uh, a prostitute, they ran her out of town. And there was some really vicious scenes where people had parties and talked about drums and fifes and drinking good backcountry whiskey while somebody got 30 or 40 lashes. So the group that had started off the regulators to regulate things for law and order were now breaking the law. They were ignoring writs from the, sh- the local sheriff. And so the moderators came in as their opposition. And at the Congress of the Congarees near Columbia, where Congaree Creek comes into Congaree River, these two opposing backcountry armies met, and thanks to General Richard Richardson, they kind of bumped heads and told everybody to go home right. and get back to tilling the field, running the store, what have you, and quit prying so much into your neighbor's morals, the old thing of, you know, who's right. going to throw the first stone. Right. Um, so that ended that, but that whole period of the regulator movement coming on the heels of the Cherokee War the backcountry society had become dysfunctional. Yes, yes, it, it was. It was really on the verge of total anarchy. But to me, it's it's again part of the of the pattern of Pickens's life because even the so-called good guys, the ones who are supposed to be on the side of of justice and virtue and law and order, uh, are prone to excesses. Uh, they are prone to violence. Uh, during the Revolution, some of Pickens's own men end up murdering British or Tory prisoners, prisoners of war. Of course, there are massacres committed by white militia against Indians who, you know, some Indians are hoping to live in peace. Again, just the, the, the depravity of man is, is just a, a theme of his, of his life. Okay. Well, after the, the initial campaigns, and the Cherokee do attack the frontier in 1776. Once that mm-hmm. conflict is put down, and by the way, it's not just the South Carolina frontier. The Cherokee frontier runs from Georgia right. all the way to Virginia. Yes. And there was an intercolonial militia move. I mean, they went after the Cherokee anywhere they found them. Right. And in South Carolina, that is Pickens, Greenville, Oconee, mm-hmm. and Anderson County, that right. corner of the state. Right. And so he was involved in that campaign. Yes, and uh, that's where he really began to really make his name as an Indian fighter, and that's where he participated in the the famous ring fight and uh, other 
other skirmishes in which he kind of emerges as a guy who uh, uh, takes the initiative and is aggressive when under fire, uh, makes decisions quickly when, when he's been ambushed. And <laughs> Okay, uh, well, talk about the ring fight. Well, in, in the ring fight, uh, this is when you know, Pickens was leading a detachment of some 35 men near what is now the it's called Tomasi. It's an extreme northwestern corner of the of the state, and they spied a Cherokee man who who they had later identified as a spy, and they followed him, and they followed him right into an ambush. Uh, Pickens suddenly realizes that there's about 180 to 200 Cherokees rising up out of the grass all around him. He has an Indian scout with him, probably a Catawba, named Brannon. And Brannon can understand Cherokee, and he understands what the Cherokees are saying to each other. And what they are saying is to conserve their ammunition and close in on the white troops to within Tomahawk range. So Brannon suggests to Pickens that he quickly form his men into a circle, into a perimeter, load their rifles in the prone position, and then rise up to fire and just kind of keep a, a relay of, of, of rifle fire going. Brannon is quickly wounded. You know, the fighting goes on. Uh, the accounts say that every single one of Pickens's men was covered with, with blood and with smoke by the time it was over. Um, other white troops who were not too far away heard the firing, and one of the one of the detachments that came to Pickens's relief was led by his own brother, uh, Joseph Pickens. When it was over, Pickens had not only survived but had inflicted a defeat on the Cherokees, and it, it really I, it could, you know, it, he was lucky, and but I think it did contribute to this aura of invincibility that began to surround him after the. The Cherokee are put down, and they're put down yeah. viciously at this point. Mm-hmm. Not only villages destroyed, orchards chopped down. I mean, it was a scorched earth policy. Things get kind of quiet in the backcountry in terms of the revolution for a while. Is he still in uniform? He's still in uniform. He's still doing militia service. Uh, he's actually, um, you know, at one point, he's elected to the assembly, but he never gets a chance to serve. Why not? Because uh, the militia being called out again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There is an expedition down to the St. Mary's River about this time that he participates in. So he's, you know, he's still busy uh, in in a military sense. That's a pretty far trek from upcountry South Carolina to the St. Mary's River. Right. You got to cross Georgia. Right. And uh, it's it it ends up being a, a very unproductive expedition. They don't really accomplish anything except some guys die from the extreme heat and, and fevers. And okay. And then you have the British coming to Charleston in 1780. Right. Right. And that's, you know, as you're alluding, there is this period between, say, 1776, 1780, when it appears from South Carolina's point of view that they've, they've got a few years to try to establish a government to sort of established the state. Mm-hmm. And then Charleston falls on May 12, 1780, one of the largest disasters to American arms in, in American military history. And as you know, over the next several weeks, the British are able to um, advance up country from, from Charleston and, and roll up the Patriot resistance. Just about all the Patriot Militia officers lay down their arms and sign parole, and that includes Pickens. All right, and let's explain what parole is. Parole is it's an agreement by which uh, the person who's accepting parole accepts uh, 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 protection. And in this case, initially, the agreement was that they would not take up arms against the king mm-hmm. in exchange for the British promising not to interfere or harm them. Now. General Sir Henry Clinton quickly reneged or kind of changed the terms of that parole, of that agreement, to say that those who had accepted parole now had to actively support the king's forces if called upon. Clinton revoked the or altered the parole in early June, right before right. he left, and this led a number of officers in the Low Country to begin partisan warfare. Right. 
and the British occupation was certainly harsher than it needed to be. Uh, it, people's houses were burned, uh, uh, churches were looted and plundered, so the insurrection springs back to life. The British went out after winning hearts and minds. <laughs> well, if they were, they weren't very good at it. And they, and a lot of it was, was Tories' retaliation against their Whig neighbors for, for harassment they had suffered. But nevertheless, law and order were not prevailing. Now, Pickens has taken parole. Pickens has taken parole, and as one militia, one patriot militia officer after another renounces his parole and rejoins the fight, Pickens does not. The traditional explanation has always been that Pickens had given his word and he felt like he was bound by it. And I think there's a lot to that. I think also that in his particular area, um, the violence and anarchy wasn't as bad. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel John Harris Kruger seemed to be a conscientious loyalist officer, uh, and, and Pickens got along with him. I also think that by late autumn, Pickens is beginning to see, however, that order and liberty are not going to be safe under British rule. But the decisive event is when Pickens is away one day, and it's probably it's the very end of November, may have been the first days of December, he is away, probably conferring with British officers um, about how to maintain law and order when his own plantation is raided by loyalist troops and plundered and his wife and children are taunted and insulted. And that's it for Pickens. All right. Now, you say plantation. It really That's yeah. an 18th century term. They, I mean, they called it a plantation. Yeah. But, yeah. but this isn't Tara. No, that's right. That's right. Uh, <laughs> this it, is a couple hundred acres of land, yeah. and yeah. And in fact, at this point, he only owned one or two slaves, right? Right, right. Um, okay, so th- this is a story that actually, you know, as you know, gets repeated throughout the back country, and how the English, frankly, were so stupid, mm-hmm. and their and their loyalist allies, but right. they, in some cases, pretty much gave them carte blanche to do whatever they wanted to do to get their revenge. And this, this happened to Sumter early on, um, which is why he... It was a huge blunder. They had been courting Pickens. They had been trying to convince Pickens to accept a British commission. And then this one Tory officer, probably uh, Major James Dunlap, makes the stupid mistake of, uh, of forever antagonizing Pickens. But what really grabbed me about the story is that at that point, when Pickens decides he's going to rejoin the Whig cause, he doesn't just slip off into the hinterland. Instead, for whatever reason, to satisfy the demands of honor or his own conscience, he goes straight to the nearest British garrison, finds the senior British, senior loyalist officer present, uh, Captain George Kerr, who he knew, um, had a relationship with, and announces to him that he considers himself released from the terms of his parole due to the violence done to his property and his family, and he's rejoining uh, the cause for American liberty. Captain Kerr begs him not to do this. He says, you're going to be fighting with a halter around your neck. If you're ever captured, you'll be hung for treason. And Pickens is courteous but adamant, and he walks out. They make no effort to arrest him, which is uh, uh, interesting mounts his horse and rides away, and within a few weeks reemerges as one of the heroes of the, of the Cowpens campaign. Rod, we have to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Professor Rod Andrew of Clemson University about his new biography of Andrew Pickens, Hero of the American Revolution. All right, let's move through his the rest of the revolution, I could talk two hours about the revolution, but let's <laughs> move through that because it's his career after the revolution that really I think is important the way you have expressed it. Probably America's, the country's premier negotiator with the American Indians of the Southeast. It's, it's really amazing. Pickens, Pickens makes a name for himself originally as a fighter, including, if not especially, as an Indian fighter. Uh, he, he is the one who inflicts the final devastating defeat on the Cherokees at, uh, at Long Swamp, Georgia, in 1782, and yet quickly reemerges as a peacemaker and as someone that 
Cherokee leaders felt they could trust, someone that they could deal with. Mm-hmm. He is one of the four federal treaty commissioners at the Treaty of Hopewell in 1785, which is the first treaty between the brand new United States and the southern tribes, that is the tribes south of the Ohio River. It, it takes place at Pickens's new property called Hopewell, which is right outside of modern-day Pendleton. Mm-hmm. So it's on his property, and um, it is the first treaty in which uh, uh, American negotiators do not demand large land sessions. In fact, the Cherokees are amazed mm-hmm. that uh, they're not being uh, demanded to give up more land. It simply tries to stabilize the boundaries, uh, uh, the status quo mm-hmm. as they exist. And it's a great accomplishment. Of course, it's quickly violated, mm-hmm. so it doesn't last long. And, uh, yeah. yeah. The Cherokees are still in western North Carolina. They're still in Georgia. But mm-hmm. now, after 1782, they've been pretty much pushed out of South Carolina. Right. Right. But the boundary is, is not far away from, from modern-day yeah. Pendleton. Okay. Yeah. You use terms, and I think his dealings with the Cherokee and would apply, three themes, liberty, order, and virtue. And you certainly make your case for that's how Pickens conducted his life. But I, I really wanted to zero in on, on order because what you just said about the treatment of the Indians, to him, order meant the wise and efficient enforcement of just laws. And treaties. And treaties. And treaties, and, but which, was, which was law. Of course, today we are much more aware of the terrible injustice uh, and the tragedy suffered by uh, American Indians. There were leaders in the early republic who aimed for a more just outcome, who really felt that for the honor of the new nation, the Indians needed to be treated fairly. And the only way to do that with all these competing jurisdictions, Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, the brand new Tennessee, the temporary state of Franklin, the short-lived state of Franklin, um, is that federal authority had to be asserted. The federal government had to be responsible for making treaties, creating stable boundaries, and these treaties needed to be enforced. And that's what Pickens is striving for from the end of the Revolutionary War until around 1802 when he finally just gives up and, and sort of retires. But those treaties are constantly being violated, you know, sometimes by Indians seeking retaliations for injustices done to them, but even more often by white settlers and by um, state governments who resent federal interference, who resent the federal government standing in the way. Uh, well, as you point out, one of those national leaders who wanted to treat well with the Indians was George Washington. Yes. Yes. Washington and Secretary of War Henry Knox both stand out in that regard. And then we've got another South Carolinian who was also a revolutionary fighter, Andrew Jackson, who basically thought the only good Indian was a dead Indian. Right. Right. So, so you know, one thing we see is that whites were not united mm-hmm. on Indian policy. They were not united on the goal of either exterminating or, or driving all the Indians away. Um, there were there were others who aimed for a for a different outcome. All right, you say he he pretty much gets out of public, at least out of the dealing with the, the Indians in the early nineteenth century. The rest of his life, he is sort of a series of retirements in which he is called back to serve once again. For instance, in the state legislature particularly when uh, the threat of war emerges in the beginning of the War of 1812. At that point, he's pretty old, um, he's, and, and he feels like he, he should be retired, but he goes to serve once again because his fellow citizens really think they need his military experience and expertise. And he also has changed his location. He's moved from Hopewell, right, to Tomasi? Yeah, it seems about 1805 he moves up to, to and it's interesting, Hopewell was right near the, uh, right beside the location of the old Cherokee village of Isenica, uh, a site 
of a of a battle that Pickens participated in, and Tomasi was within sight, just a few hundred yards of uh, the ring fight. So he he settles again next to another old battlefield of his, and basically retires. Yeah. All right, but he in that interval, in the certainly post-war period, he's become pretty prosperous. He has become prosperous. He, and, and this is, I hope we can get to this at some point. Um, by 1790, he had 33 slaves. Which puts him in a category of major planter. The largest slaveholder in Pendleton County, which was a moderate slaveholding by low country standards. Mm-hmm. But um, by the time of his will in 1809, he only has 10 slaves. So he's obviously given some away to his grown children. Uh, and, and he he pays very close attention to what's going to happen to those slaves in his in his 1809 will. Well, I, I think that's an interesting proviso that he put, his oldest son has already died. Right. His youngest son is still alive, Joseph. Joseph and uh, his middle son, Andrew. Okay. But he mentions he leaves those slaves in his will to Joseph. Well, it's... It's a very, very interesting document. He conditionally provides for the manumission of those slaves. The, the first part of the document, he says, you know, as the Negroes have been a means under providence that have uh, provided the comforts of life for me and for others, I desire that they be used with humanity and with justice. And he anticipates Becky, his wife, um, needing an overseer, and he says, I want there to be a humane uh, and careful overseer hired who's going to make sure they have warm clothing and they're taken care of. And then he says that um, if Joseph, who had, who had not yet come of age, if, if he has not yet come of age by the time I die, and he has no will, and he is, is not married, I want these ten slaves to be freed. And that sounds like kind of an offhand, or, or you know, if, if, if. But he did give some thought to it because he very carefully described 150 acres of land, a plot that, that they were to be given, um, X number of, of work animals, um, breeding, you know, breeding sows, axes, plows, all the tools, spinning cars, spinning wheels that the women would need to, to, make, to make clothing. Um, so he intended to set them up as independent farmers. It's not an anti-slavery document. Uh, first of all, he could have just freed them unconditionally. Second, uh, Joseph did not die young, so probably none of those slaves were ever freed. But it cut against the grain for the time. Uh, by 1809, there are not many wills that are calling for the manumission of, of slaves. Mm-hmm. That wave has passed. Uh, that that wave of manumitting slaves that followed the American Revolution has passed. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it never really touched the Deep South never touched South Carolina that much at all anyway. By 1808, uh, the political situation in South Carolina has, has changed with the Great Compromise mm-hmm. between the low country and, and the up country, as it's now calling itself, not the back country. Right, right. The great, the great Compromise has to do with representation in the General Assembly, where half the seats in the House of Representatives will be apportioned according to the taxable wealth of an election district, and half will be apportioned according to the population of an election district. It still did not give the upcountry control, but eventually as the Black Belt, as it was called then, moved inland, mm-hmm. the Black Belt dominated the state by 1840. Right, and the interest of the upcountry and low country began to converge. Yeah. Yeah. People sometimes, certainly in the backcourt, they looked up to folks like Pickens, but he's withdrawn from public life by that by that time. And the political world in South Carolina was pretty hurly-burly, 1810 up until through the 1820s. And I just wonder how that fits in with Pickens' concern about liberty, order, virtue. I don't think that Pickens was concerned about you know, what we would call the democratization of, of political life in South Carolina, uh, he was only concerned when the law wasn't enforced. For instance, when tax collectors were, <laughs> were harassed or beaten up. Mm-hmm. But Pickens himself is a symbol of that, uh, that rising egalitarianism, that, mm-hmm. that, that tide of democracy. 
Uh, he is uh, he is the kind of person, he has the kind of background that would have never been trusted with great authority before the revolution. Um, his son, his eldest son, Ezekiel, becomes lieutenant governor. Mm-hmm. And his successor is Thomas Sumter, Jr. Mm-hmm. Both Pickens and Sumter were, you know, they were not from the from the elite class. Uh, Pickens' second son, Andrew, would become governor you know, just over a year before Pickens died. Mm-hmm. That is something that no one would have imagined, say, 1775, mm-hmm. you know, even 1780 or, or 81. Clearly, at the time of his death, Pickens is a member of the South Carolina elite. Yes. Both by stature uh, and by public acceptance. But interestingly, he never cared much about public kudos. I mean, this is something, in today's politics, everybody wants claps and pats on the back. Pickens couldn't care less. That combination of, of modesty and confidence is, to me, was very attractive when I was, when I was writing a biography. And I sound like that, I, I know Pickens was a very flawed man, and certainly he, he had moral failures and moral blind spots, especially when it came to, to slavery. But when I read the letter that he wrote to Henry Lee, in 1811. Henry Lee was a comrade of Pickens during the Revolution. He was a Continental Army officer. Yeah. Light, light Horse Harry light Lee. Light Horse Harry Lee. And Lee was trying to write a book on the history of the Revolution in the South, which he eventually did. And he wrote to Pickens and asked Pickens to write to him and tell him all about his life and his campaigns. Well, Pickens summed up 70 years of war and adventure in eight handwritten pages. (laughs) And he didn't go into much detail on anything. And if Lee was present at something, he didn't go into any detail at all. And there's a sentence where he says, at the siege of Augusta and the Battle of the Utah and other services with the Army, you know whether I did my duty, period. That's all he has to say. Now, they were very important characters um, at these battles. And in fact, at the Battle of the Utah, uh, Pickens was badly wounded, presumed dead, and dragged off the battlefield. His militia had played a key role at the battle. His contemporaries would have loved for him to go on and on about his experiences at the Battle of the Utah. Let him put his spin on it. Let him tell his story. All he says is, you know whether I did my duty. And that's all. That, <laughs> uh, there's nothing more to be said. You do have a direct quotation that I'm going to read, and this is from that letter. Right. This is Pickens to Lighthorse Harry Lee. I leave it to my country to say whether in my public transactions I have discharged the duties assigned me with honesty and fidelity, and whether I have been an humble instrument in the hand of providence to its advantage. But whatever the public sentiment might be, I have a witness within myself that my public life and conduct, I have been moved and actuated by an ardent zeal for the welfare and happiness of my beloved country. That's the most self-promotion we're ever going to get out of Pickens, if you call that self-promotion. He just says, here's my record, here's my story, and so I leave it to my country to say. And then it says, as you say, whatever the public sentiment may be, I still have a witness within myself. So... It's, it is refreshing in, in our day and age of, of political spin to uh, see someone who can just say that and, and, and leave it where it is. Rod, I'm going to ask you, I have underlined a quotation at the back that you wrote, okay. not Pickens, and I'd like for you to read it, and then we want to spend a few minutes talking about what you've got next on your plate, because I think our listeners would be interested in that as well. Okay. okay. Perhaps that note of ambiguity is the most appropriate way to sum up the relevance of Pickens's life in the larger American story. Right or wrong, for good or ill, Pickens's life represents that part of American history, that part of Americans' understanding of themselves, that still insist on putting God, or at least morality, in some way at the heart of their story. More principled than most, Andrew Pickens was nonetheless a product of the culture in which he lived of that frontier revolutionary ethic of faith, courage, and violence, of individual freedom and opportunity growing alongside racism and inequality that made the new American Republic what it was. Striving to act virtuously in the midst of sin and injustice, 
he did not completely succeed by the standards of our day. It was lives like his, however, that helped future generations of Americans define some of the very standards by which they have judged the founding one. Physical courage and selfless patriotism, often softened by a desire for justice, magnanimity toward defeated foes, and even a recognition, perhaps belated and sometimes incomplete, of the humanity of individuals of other races. Though better known as a warrior than anything else, he spent his life seeking order and peace in the midst of rapid change and turbulence. Andrew Pickens' story, then, was profoundly American. His children and friends were perhaps more eloquent than they knew when they composed the epitaph on his headstone at the Old Stone Church. A Christian, a patriot, and a soldier, his deeds and character are incorporated with the history of his country. That's it. There's no four-sided monument with all the battles fought. No, just just a, a headstone by the old stone church that he helped found and, and build. Which is a national monument. The church is. Rod, you certainly have brought Andrew Pickens to life. Now, I know that you've got another project going on, and I would just like to share what you have in mind over the next few years that, that you're going to be producing. Well, Walter, uh, uh, an intelligent scholar would stay in the same field of research in the same era, and um, I, I'm, I'm obviously not very intelligent because I keep skipping around. Uh, as we said, I, I did do a lot of time as a Marine Corps uh, field historian, and I'm very interested in modern military history, particularly the survival of the Marine Corps. All right. Now, when was the Marine Corps under the, attack? The Marine Corps was very close to being abolished or, or, or shrunk to the point of irrelevance after World War II in the unification debate and the uh, attempt to unite all the military services into a Department of Defense. There was a lot of skullduggery and cloak and dagger on Capitol Hill. There were Marine officers running around securing uh, uh, secret documents that uh, they were not supposed to see. Were these documents on how the Marine Corps was going to be? These were documents on the Army's and Air Force vision of how the Marine Corps was <laughs> was going to lose its missions and become irrelevant. And uh, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, who was uh, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, um, he did not think we really needed a Marine Corps, that it was a redundancy. Uh, President Truman did not like the Marines, felt the same way. And he was an Army veteran. He was an Army veteran. And uh, then through the Korean War, the Marines reemerge uh, as, uh, as darlings of the American public uh, due to events like the Pusan Perimeter, the Inchon Landing, the Chosin Reservoir. And before the Korean War is even over, there's a, a, another, there's a law passed by Congress that, uh, that not only delineates the missions of the Marine Corps, but establishes a minimum strength for it. And it's the only service now that has a minimum strength protected by law. So it's quite an interesting story. Well, you know, it just it really comes as something of a, a shock. You, you think about the war in the Pacific. There was Army there, too, and the, everybody was involved, but the Marine, whether it's Iwo Jima, Guadalcanal, uh, Peleliu, and then after the war to think that there are folks who want to shut down the Marine Corps. It sounds like a fascinating tale. Again, one that has not been told. One, it's and and you can bring in, like I said, all the cloak and dagger on Capitol Hill and uh, some of the the battlefield stories. And uh, you know, ultimately, the Marine Corps' future is secured on the battlefield. Uh, so it's. Uh, I want to assure my colleagues at Clemson, Clemson that I'm not going to stop doing Southern history, and I, I I don't know how far I actually get with this. It's just an idea right now. Well. It sounds like a fascinating one, but, I mean, you've produced two biographies in an era when, among historians, biographies are something out of fashion, but they've become incredible resources for those of us who who do history. And I would think that your Pickens biography, like yours of Wade Hampton, is going to be a crossover into uh, the general reader market. And... If you do the Marine Corps, the skullduggery, and all of the, you, <laughs> hey, man, we'll see you on the New York Times bestseller list. <laughs> well, I appreciate those kind words, Walter. I've, I've, really, I've really enjoyed both those biographies, and uh, it's, it, it was a lot of fun doing them. Okay. All right. 
Alfred's giving me a, a wind-up sign. Rod, is there anything you'd like to say to our listeners before we sign up? Well, I know the most difficult thing is is uh, how to treat someone like Pickens, who um, in many ways is a very admirable uh, uh, character. And at the same time, we wrestle with the fact that he was a slaveholder. And, and, uh, we, I, but I, I think that we have to... Uh, I wonder about the moral blind spots that we have that future generations will condemn us for. I, I think we need to call out injustices when we see them, but hopefully with, with some humility and well, some perspective. Well, as you, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, you need to look at Andrew Pickens within the context of his time, not in the 21st century. Different world. That doesn't mean we don't call evil evil, but um, absolutely we, we um, that's part of our job is to... Uh, do so with with whatever empathy and understanding we can, while at the same time calling evil evil when it when it mm-hmm. exists. All right, Rod Andrew, professor of history at Clemson University, and the author of two wonderful biographies, one of Wade Hampton, and the other of Andrew Pickens. And the title of that biography, just published, is "The Life and Times of General Andrew Pickens, Revolutionary War Hero, American Founder." Rod. Thanks for driving down from Clemson today to be with us on The Journal. Thank you, Walter. It was great. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. I've known Rod for a number of years as a fellow historian, his biography of Wade Hampton, and now his life and times of General Andrew Pickens. What I really admire is how he has been able to pull together what information is available and put it within a framework of the times. It's not just Andrew Pickens, it's the life and times. And in this book, Rod Andrew captures the South Carolina backcountry frontier from the 1750s until the early 19th century. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of the journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.